Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. It is brought to you by GoDaddy.com, where you can build your own domain name, build your own site, or use any of GoDaddy's business tools and save 30%. Just head over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com and hit on the resources tab and the GoDaddy icon to save 30% today. Okay, so today's episode. Uh, This was a fun episode. It was a little long, so I had to split it in two. So today is part one. Thursday will be part two. My guests for this two-part episode are doctors Kenny Veneer and Kyle Ridgway. So Kenny Veneer currently works as a home health physical therapist for Intermountain Home Care and Hospice in Salt Lake City. He graduated from Northeastern University in Boston with his DPT in 2014. His primary interests within physical therapy are scientific literacy, meta-research, and the philosophy of evidence-based practice. He writes infrequently on these topics at his website, physiologicalpt.com. And Kyle Ridgway received his BA in neuroscience from Pomona College and a doctor of physical therapy degree from the University of Colorado, Denver, Anschutz Medical Campus. Currently, he is a senior physical therapist and team leader for medical ICU physical therapy at the University of Colorado Hospital. He also serves as a clinical instructor for the University of Colorado Denver Physical Therapy Program, a quality improvement project in the medical ICU that he designed and implemented, eventually became standard practice. And he also blogs at pttinktake.com, where he aims to provide thoughtful analysis and critical thinking on various clinical, scientific, humanistic topics related to physical therapy. But of course, that's just his opinion. So... Today's episode, we talked about a lot of things. We got a lot of questions from uh, people all across social media. So thank you all for bringing those questions to us. And I think we answered almost all of them. So in part one of this conversation, uh, of course, we talked about dry needling. So if you did not, if you were not at CSM back in February and did not attend the dry needling debate, uh, you can still see it. Just go to the section on women's health, uh, which is part of the American Physical Therapy Association, and you can get the dry needling debate there. And of course, we talked about that. It was a question that came up frequently because both Kyle and Kenny are on the no side that PT should not be using dry needling. So we discussed that. We discussed it. Should it be implemented as a physical therapy intervention? We talk about what is physical therapy roles? What is the physical therapy role in the opioid crisis? And we also talk about communication and collaboration between acute care PTs and home health PTs. Kyle's in acute care. I'm in home health. Kenny is in home health. So we talked about this communication and collaboration, which I think there really is a lack of, between the acute care PTs and the home health PTs following discharge from the hospital. Um, It was a great conversation. It it was a little long, which is why we had to split it into two. But I want to thank both Kyle and Kenny for coming on and being honest and curmudgeon-y. Um, not super curmudgeon not as curmudgeon as maybe people think they are. Um, but it was a great conversation, so I want to thank both those guys. And also, of course, I want to thank GoDaddy for sponsoring this 
specific episode of Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart. So all you have to do is head over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, click on the resources tab and the GoDaddy icon, and you can save 30% today in order to build your own domain name, your site, or any of their business tools. So thanks to GoDaddy and thanks to Kyle and Kenny. And again, this is part one with part two coming out on Thursday, May 18th. So be on the lookout for that. Hey, Kyle, welcome back to the podcast. And Kenny, welcome to the podcast for the first time. I'm happy to have you guys here. Pleasure to be here as always. Pleasure's all ours. Thanks so much. You're welcome. We had a lot of great questions from social media, um, and we're going to try and get to all of them. So what we're going to talk about first is I think we should just kind of get this out of the way. And that is uh, the dry needling debate. So for those who were not at the combined sections meeting this year in San Antonio, the two of you, along with uh, Mark Mulligan and Callie Aquin, Callie Aquin, uh, did a, an Oxford debate, a real Oxford debate, with Scott Morrison being the moderator about dry needling. You guys were on the con, and Callie and Mark were on the pro. I was there. I thought it was great. I thought it was a great debate. I think. It definitely got people thinking. Whether they swayed their stance one way or another, I think is irrelevant, but I think it really got people thinking a little bit more about using that modality on the regular. So the first question is from Zach Stearns, and he said, what were your main takeaways from the CSM debate, and what should we debate next year? Um, I mean, I f first of all, obviously want to give some credit and uh, our appreciation to both Callie and Mark for participating in that debate. Um, we had a lot of logistical things we had to work through and they actually came on uh behind the scenes a little late in the game so a big shout out to them um for agreeing to participate and obviously kenny and i i think had a really great experience with that and i think i was really surprised with the reaction i was really to be quite honest with you wholeheartedly expecting that the majority of the house was going to be in support of dry needling uh the majority of social media would be in support of dry needling and we would kind of be in the minority viewpoint. Um, but I think to Zach's question, my biggest takeaway is that I think people at CSM from a session standpoint, especially students actually really yearn for some disagreement or from some, for some, uh, differing points of view. And I think what happens a lot of times at CSM is, is the classic lecture PowerPoint slide dump, right? Someone's up there with a PowerPoint, giving a presentation, giving information, and it's informative for sure. There maybe is a lot of data or a lot of good reasoning, but it's fairly one-sided. I think the dynamic nature of forcing people to take a very uh, binary yes or no, pro or con point of view is really instructive and engaging for the audience. And so I think the reception from it was my biggest takeaway that this is probably a session type that we need to look at more often and that we probably need to consider as a more regular type of session construction. So it's not really a deep insight, but that's for sure was, I think, my biggest takeaway. Kenny? Yeah, and I, I'd like to thank Sandy Hill and, and the section on women's health for sponsoring the session. Sandy uh, reached out to us and really kind of spearheaded getting the, the debate going there. So we're thankful to have the, the platform and the, the video is actually now available online for purchase if you're not a member of the section on women's health. And if you are a member, it's free. Um, all the proceeds go to the, I believe it's their 
their research fund for um, doing some some science on ladies and their bits, which is great. So Everybody great loves cause. science. Yep. But I think, yeah, our, our big takeaway, I think our goal was to demonstrate that professional argument is important and it can be done in a way that's respectful and productive and beneficial to those that came. I think we talked about not thinking we're going to change anyone's minds necessarily um, for people that are pro dry needling or con dry needling, but more so those people who might not be very exposed to dry needling might be on the fence. Hopefully they left more informed in just the greater goal of having people think more critically about how they choose to implement interventions in a physical therapy practice, how they think about the literature on interventions in physical therapy practice was really what we hope to accomplish. And, and I think that you did because at the end, so they took sort of like an informal survey of the audience, who is pro, who is con, and who is undecided. And what happened from the beginning poll to at the end they did the same thing. And again, I don't think the people that were very pro remained pro. The people that were very calm remained con. But those people who were undecided, it seemed like more people were undecided. So I don't know if that swayed people from the con to the pro or the pro to the con. But I think that's a sign of a, a good debate and a good discussion when you leave people with, hmm, I think that maybe I need to look into this a little bit further versus the superficial uh, conversations that maybe people have online or on yeah. social media is that mm -hmm. I think that it got people to think a little bit deeper about what am I really doing and is this the right modality for myself as a therapist and for my patients as a population. And that, that, I guess that was my biggest takeaway. Not that anybody asked, but that was mine. Well, your <laughs> podcast, you can say whatever you want, I guess. Is this how is, the rules this go is there. your venue. That's a good point. Uh, but yeah, and so people are aware the the motion in the house was, you know, this, this house um, believes that physical therapists should implement dry needling into practice. So a very kind of broad, far, far sweeping uh, motion, you know, wasn't very specific at the level of, you know, is dry needling effective for uh, musculoskeletal pain complaints or something like that. So I think it really lended itself to a lot of thought and thought experiments on is this something that we should pursue aggressively as an intervention. So, you know. What I enjoyed about it was we kind of covered a broad spectrum of talking about basic kind of lab science to actual clinical endpoints and then into more kind of bigger picture topics such as the the legislative costs, the research costs, the training costs, those kind of things. So we kind of looked at it through a variety of lenses, which I thought was important to do. Yeah, and, and I agree. And again, if people want to get that video, we'll have a link for it in the show notes. So you don't have to search around the interwebs for it. It'll be right here in the show notes, which is great. Um, and keeping on the dry needling, um, John Snyder also asked a question. Um, why is dry needling so amazing? And why don't more therapists utilize it? <laughs> We're sticking with the topic, so I figured I should ask that. <laughs> ask the question. Well, thank you, John. We appreciate the question. I'll lead off on this one. Um, I can only assume that John's question is only partially in jest, but again, Facebook is hard to, uh, you know, interpret tone and all those other communication undercurrents. Um, I think it depends on where you live, of course. I don't have any good data to go to, I don't think, 
and hopefully the listenership can correct us if we're wrong. I don't know of any good data that actually has quantified either via survey or point prevalence how often dry needling is used. And I think that's actually a very interesting question that I would drop upon our colleagues to investigate. Um, you know, I live in Colorado, so Colorado, uh, it, you know, right now we're having some legislative battles with the acupuncturists, of course, but historically we've been able to dry needle. Um, there's some high profile continuing ed companies that are based out of Colorado that teach dry needling. So at least in the Denver metro area, it's very common for me to run into therapists and to know therapists that needle. So I think my intuitions and perceptions are probably a little bit skewed that a lot of therapists use it. And um, I think that's all I'm going to say about about that, not having any other data to comment when <laughs> skirting the question. I'll let, I'll let Kenny well, I, answer I mean, in more detail. Knowing, knowing John personally, I think he was being sarcastic there. So I'll give a, with full transparency, a sarcastic answer without any evidence that actually quantifies the awesomeness of dry needling. And to my knowledge, we don't have a, a verified outcome measure assessing the, the bit awesomeness. Can't comment because research is everything. Without it, we have nothing. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. All right. So let's talk a little, so let's talk a little bit more in about the PT profession as a whole. So, you know, speaking about research, obviously there's a lot of research and a lot of public outcry over the opioid crisis, and rightfully so. So what do you think the physical therapist, the physical therapy profession as a whole, what should our role be within the opioid crisis? Kenny, go ahead. I think it's a, it's a very complex discussion. Um, addiction as a whole is something that no one has great answers for. Um, it's something that's remarkably complex, difficult to treat, difficult to understand why people become addicted to certain things. And it's, it's multifactorial, like so many of the things that we work with as physical therapists. I think our big role is to provide education to patients on how opioids can affect you, what their role is, um, empowering them to have a plan with their physician to manage their pain medications, taper off their pain medications if it's something like after an acute operation, like a total knee replacement or something like that. Opioids have a, a valuable role in that as a home health physical therapist. Um, and Kyle probably sees this as well in the hospital. I see people from post-op day one, two, three, four, and without these opiate medications, they wouldn't largely be able to go through their day-to-day. -day. They wouldn't necessarily be safe in the home, but it's kind of a double-edged sword in that sometimes opiate medications are over-prescribed or inappropriately prescribed. And I think a lot of this has come from the, was it the early 2000s, where we started thinking of pain as the the sixth vital sign, and in hospitals especially, they're paid based off of surveys, HCAPs, those kinds of things, when they ask patients, was your pain appropriately managed? And opiates at the time was marketed as the cure for pain. Um, so there was a lot of now retroactively deceptive marketing by some of the pharmaceutical companies, um, some well-meaning physicians, 
prescribing these medications that's created a, a very large problem. Physical therapists, I think, have a role, but it's important that we be humble in the claims we make about our role. We're by no means a panacea or a cure for the opioid crisis, but I think we can plan a central role in what is a bigger puzzle. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, I, I had interviewed Beth, Dr. Beth Darnell. So she's a researcher and uh, psychologist out of Stanford. And she kind of echoed what you just said. What's interesting about the opioid crisis is she said it was kind of this perfect storm where you had a lot of marketing from pharmaceuticals because they are allowed to do that in the United States, along with really, uh, she said, a, a lack of pain education and uh, pain science education for physicians in medical school. She said the majority of physicians only uh, spoke about pain for a couple of hours. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of hours of education, and oftentimes it was under the premise of diabetic neuropathies or something like that. So you have this perfect storm happening all at the same time, and then what's a, a way that you can kind of placate your patients, and that's prescribe an opioid. Yeah, I think <clears throat> both of you bring up really good points there. And I, I think what it illustrates is, number one, there's this big question of what contributed to what we would call this crisis. And I think no one would deny that this, this is an issue. I mean, if you look at the data, if you look at the growth of prescriptions, if you look at the growth of overdoses, you look at the growth of uh, opioid dependence or addiction, uh, also, you know, pivoting to a related, but, you know, also tough to investigate thing as far as, uh, heroin addictions and heroin overdoses. This is a really big problem. And <clears throat> I think big problems like this, especially for us, we don't prescribe meds. Uh, it's very for easy for us to take a conservative, no medication, no imaging, no intervention approach to solving problems. This is a classic scenario that lends itself to a false dichotomy. That, in other words, you either get opiates or you get physical therapy. And maybe if you're talking about an idealistic uh, care choice pathway or health services pathway or even a research study, let's randomize you to either get the opioids or get physical therapy. Yeah, we can, we can answer and ask those questions. But I think in the real life pragmatic uh, environment that we live in, that's not the case. I think it's very rare that we see people that aren't given the choice of some of these other medical interventions or that are not on opioids or that have literally made the choice. Well, you know what? I'm not going to do medication. I'm going to do physical therapy. I think most physical therapists would agree patients come to you with some type of medication regimen, and that may include opiates. And I think where we need to be careful is painting so broad a brushstroke that we paint opioids and related medications as a totally harmful, never to use bad thing. And there's really nice data. Um, I'm not as familiar with it as I should be, but we could look it up that suggests that especially like in very acute pain crises, post-surgical pain, hospitaliz hospitalizations that lead to a lot of acute pain, such as traumas, that early scheduled opiate use actually reduces long-term and overall opiate use and actually leads to less dependence and addiction um, because you don't have patients riding what we call the pain roller coaster. And working in an acute care hospital, obviously my lens is a little biased, but the same is true even in the intensive care unit where 
we are actually starting to have a better lens on this and realizing that opiates have a negative side effect and we're trying to minimize their use when even when we're talking about sedating very critically ill mechanically ventilated patients but the flip side is is that we know that pain is an independent predictor and risk factor for the development of delirium so i mean i think the position is what i would call or what i've heard called a long short position in other words there's some nuance here and to actually answer the question that was posed how do physical therapists interface in this in this cog in this humongous wheel and i think there's a couple of ways here, and I, I think it depends on your level of analysis. So you, if we start global, you talk about health services, and we talk about, okay, let's identify where opiates are misprescribed and overused. And it's probably in general musculoskeletal pain and for sure in chronic pain. And there's good mm -hmm. data now that shows that if you give patients who have chronic pain opiates, you may actually exacerbate central sensitization or actually sensitize their system, right? So here's a situation where we say opiates aren't the answer. So how do we pivot people to a better pathway where maybe a physical therapist should be at the table discussing what a right pathway is here, right? So that's a health services question. Uh, the secondary question is day-to-day -day practice, right? You're going to go see your patient tomorrow who's in the hospital, who's in your outpatient clinic, who's in a SNF, who is in home health, especially. I think you guys see this a lot, who's using opioid medications. How do you interface with that? And I think it's very easy to get in this mode where we, again, say, these are bad. No, don't use them. Let's get off them. But we know you can have rebound hyperalgesia if you just take off opiate medications, right? So there has to be some nuance, again, to how we, to Kenny's point, can we help with the down titration of this? Can we make recommendations that maybe you don't need this medication anymore? Or, or is our goal to get off of it? And I think with an interdisciplinary collaborative model, even at the ground level, those are things we can do tomorrow. But I, I get, I think, justifiably nervous when we start talking about physical therapy as the answer to the opioid crisis. That, to me, not to say that physical therapy doesn't have a role, but makes me very nervous. Because when we talk about the opioid crisis, to Kenny's point, it's nuanced and it's layered. We're talking about addiction problems. We're talking about advertising problems in the pharmaceutical industry. We're talking about uh, pain education or dealing with pain from a physician standpoint. We're talking about prescribing patterns. There's so much nuance here. And I think to unilaterally present that physical therapy the, is the answer to this runs the risk of us kind of overstepping our bounds a little bit. Um, so I think we absolutely have a role, but we need to think about at what level we're trying to have a role and where we can have a role now and in the future, as opposed to this idealistic dichotomy of, it's either opiates or physical therapy. And, and for me, that, that makes me nervous. That makes me nervous. Physical therapy as a profession, we have a role in that. We should kind of have a seat at that table and we need to be more collaborative. So I think oftentimes we tend to silo ourselves or insulate ourselves within our own profession. Um, so I think as the physical therapy profession, we are just one part of that team and we need to be open to being part of that team. Yeah, absolutely. And I think being in home health, one of the most important things I do is I see patients who are often coming out of the hospital, whether it be after joint replacement or critical illness or something like that. And there's often these radical medical medicine changes to their regimen, um, new opiates or even things like new blood pressure meds. And I'm seeing these patients, not when they're resting in the hospital bed, um, but when they're 
moving around, when they're getting in and out of the shower, when they're trying to um, get clothes out of the drawer. And these medications, opiates, have profound effects on their safety in the home. And they're often newly prescribed or their doses are changed and that kind of thing after they've been through renal failure or knee replacement. So that communication with other members of the team. So it's not my role to change their medications, but it's my role to see a problem and try to direct that patient to the right provider, whether that's their primary care doctor or even suggesting to them an interdisciplinary pain clinic, which is one of the things I think, at least in my area, is wildly underutilized. And I find that most of my patients who have been on chronic opioids aren't even aware that that's an option for them Mm -hmm. is to go to see not only a physician, but a psychologist, a physical therapist, an occupational therapist. So I think uh, just being that that kind of case manager and identifying problems and facilitating communications is one of my most important roles in home health. Yeah, I agree. And and I feel the same way. I feel like I'm sort of the coordinator because I am the person seeing patients sometimes three times a week and, and then some. And because you're in the home, people are more comfortable. I think people are more comfortable with you. They're more comfortable with communicating with you, whether it be the patient or the caregiver. And so... You're, you as the therapist, especially in home health, have such an important role to play because you, you essentially become part of the family and, and you're taken in and you're given a lot of access that the doctors are not given or that the PT, like in Kyle's position, in acute care is not given that because once they're discharged from acute care, that, that bout of care is over and then comes communication with the rest of the team, hopefully. But I agree with you, Kenny. I think that's, that's in my opinion, that's my biggest role that I play is being really a, a coordinator of services and doing my best. I try to be the best at that because it's the patient's care that's on the line. Absolutely. So I take it very seriously. For sure. um, and and, and I, actually, I, yeah, go ahead, Kyle. I just, I want to mention briefly that I think this concept of being on a team is really important. And I, 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 Sensor, I feel like we should, um, you know, give our physician colleagues some credit in that, you know, there's the classic saying that when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And, you know, I truly believe that, you know, the majority of healthcare providers, regardless of their profession, are doing the best that they can with the resources they have under the constraints of the system. And as Kenny mentioned, you know, we made vital, we made pain a vital sign. Uh, patient satisfaction in the hospital is one of the most talked about things in administration. And if you mix this context together, there's a real incentive to say we have to do something to take this pain away, which goes back to your point, Karen, of, you know, whereas healthcare professionals writ large and physicians specifically not very well trained with how do you interface with someone who's suffering and has pain. And for physicians, it's right, make the right diagnosis, find the physiologic derangement, give the right treatment regimen, which a lot of times includes drugs. And so for them, they're using the tools that they have at hand to do the best that they can. And I would just say that with my interactions with physicians who are both in training and been doing this for a long time, they know this is a problem and they want to solve the problem, but they don't have the tools many times. And if you come to the table and say, you know, which, to give an example for me is, you know, we use fentanyl, we use an opiate a lot in the ICU to sedate and make people comfortable and synchronous with the, with the mechanical ventilator, with the breathing machine while they're critically ill. But if I can come to the team and say, 
hey, you know what? I've found that you know, Mrs. Smith is uncomfortable here. She's actually told me that she prefers to lay on her left side and that's more comfortable for her. You know, if we wake her up in this way, I've never had a physician say to me, no, Kyle, she needs to be on the opiate. That's what's going to do this. Please don't talk to me anymore. <laughs> and so I, th I think if we open our minds to the fact that we can collaborate and physicians are really open to solving the problem, as Kenny said, there's a problem here, let's solve it. I think we can have a real ground level impact on a patient to patient, provider to provider um, standpoint. And I, I think that's where we should hang our hat right now is helping solve these problems. Yeah, and, and I don't disagree. And I think as, as PTs, we have to go to the other healthcare professionals in the mindset of what can I do for you? What can, what can I do for you? What can, I, what can our profession do for you? Not what can you do for me? Yeah. And if, I think if you approach it in that, in that respect, doors open and people are so, they're more than willing to collaborate. You know, they don't, doctors don't want to have their patients on opioids for, for a year. They don't want to do that. Why would they want to do that? You know, and, and nor does the patient want to do that. So I think as the PT profession, we just have to really get a little humble and, and go to the table with this is, this is my knowledge base. This is what I can do. How can I help you? Because this is what I'm seeing. And like you said, I've done that with physicians and never once were they like, you're an idiot. Goodbye. Like right. they would ne like no one does that, you know? So you have to just be open and approach with that kind of collaborative spirit. And I think more often than not, you're going to see that reciprocated. And that's what I've yeah. seen in home health and, and what you're seeing in acute care. And it kind of leads into, so now we're talking about PTs communicating with the physicians and other parts of the team, but how about, how can acute care PTs better collaborate with post-acute care rehab? And that's by uh, Jamie, Jamie Louie. So how can we, as, because I'm, I'm in home health, Kenny's in home health, you're in acute care. So I don't get much communication between. So what, as, so Kyle, I'll, I'll go to you. Yeah. As a home health therapist, what can I do to better communicate with you as an acute care therapist? So if you're seeing someone post total knee replacement, like Kenny and I said, we're, I'm seeing them day one when they get home. Yeah. So what There's, can we do to communicate better with you for the sake of the patient? I think most of this <clears throat> health services-wise probably rests on the acute care side of the situation. The, the, um, the situation where I could see it could be different is when uh, home health agencies partner with hospitals and kind of show that, you know, because of care bundling and other payment reforms that they get better outcomes and they deliver better care and therefore the door is open for what I would call kind of backwards communication where, hey, we know we're going to get patients. This is kind of what we want to do. Um, but I, uh, an another guest who's been on your podcast, podcast uh, Jason Falvey, I participate in some research with him on care transitions. And quite generally, some preliminary data suggests that these communications really don't happen between settings and especially between acute care and home health. And I, I, I can give my N of one example of that in six years in acute care, I have never once called a home health physical therapist. Never. And I've never once had a home health physical therapist call me. 
but how would they? I've never given one of them my contact information. It is literally impossible to call a big academic hospital and say, let me talk to Kyle Ridgway, the physical therapist usually worked and would never happen. It'd be impossible. And is it so I think it if you called our hospital, so let me let me give you let's actually just let's just process this out. So you would call our main hospital line and you would say, Hi, I'm trying to get a hold of a physical therapist who treated one of my patients before I had them in home health. And they would say, okay, um, what's the name of the therapist? They'd say, oh, the, uh, his name is Kyle Ridgway. And they'd say, okay, what department does he work in? And he would say, the physical therapy department. And they'd say, oh, we don't have a physical therapy department. And would be like, what do you mean? Like, well, there's nothing listed here that says physical therapy department. I have physical medicine and rehabilitation. I have in, inpatient rehabilitation services. I have outpatient physical therapy. Who would you like to speak to? You say ah, it's probably not PM and R. Let's sit. inpatient uh, inpatient rehabilitation services. You'd be routed to our administrative uh, assistant, our kind of patient services coordinator, who answers our phone calls. You say, hey, I want to talk to this therapist who uh, worked with one of my patients. How how do I get in contact with him? Does he have a, like a, a voicemail or something? No, he doesn't have a voicemail. He has a pager though. I don't know where he is right now. Do you, would you like me to send him a page? And you'd say, yeah, yeah. Why don't you page him? Or she could give you my pager number. Then I would be paged, and when I had time, I, you know, granted we returned pages pretty quickly, I would probably page you back. And as soon as you said, like, hey, I'm this physical therapist from the outside, yada, 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 like I have your patient, most therapists would be incentivized because their department would say this is not productive time. They would say, hey, you know what, I'm really busy and I'm not meeting my productivity today. Can you maybe shoot me a quick email or I can give you like a three-minute rundown? Or what would likely happen is, actually, I don't really remember that patient. Right. I mean, if you're talking about seeing seven, eight, nine, 10, 12 patients a day in acute care for one to three visits with an average length of stay in the hospital of three to four days, there are patients that I saw yesterday that I probably don't remember their name. Not because I'm not trying, but because there's no salience there. So there's no system. And Jason's research has kind of shown this. And I think what we have to do better is to just build systems where we can actually give discharge information on physical functional status, barriers, um, our actual assessments and incentivize for the acute care hospital that this is productive. It is productive to give synchronous pass-off on really complicated patients to the next level of care, to call home health therapists and give them a heads up. Because I know I've heard Kenny talk about it. I've heard a lot of home health therapists talk about it. Yeah, I'm basically just walking into a house with two diagnoses. I know nothing about this person. Yeah. Right? And how nice would it be to be able to talk to Kenny and be like, hey, did you know that, uh, you know, Miss Medina literally never gets up before noon? She goes to bed at 3 a.m. every single night. Do not try to schedule a session with her before 1 And you're like, oh, um, we're scheduled for 10 o'clock tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, right? Yeah. Exactly. So I don't know, Kenny, what do you think we can do? Yeah, I think from my perspective, I'm in an integrated system with Intermountain. So I work for their home care and hospice division. So we have, you know, Intermountain Medical Center, LDS Hospital, um, most of the major hospitals in the state of Utah are with Intermountain. And my ability to get access to physical therapy notes is few and far in between. Um, so and that's a very indirect form of communication. And if you've ever been in a hospital system and you, you look at the, the nurses' notes and the physical therapy notes that get churned out by systems like Epic and things, they're, they're not the most useful or terse or uh, concise things. It's a lot of flow sheets and it doesn't give you a very vivid picture of the patient. So even when they are available, they're not the most useful 
of things. But that handoff between um, acute care and home health rehab, both physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech therapists, I think is very important because you have these these conditions like congestive heart failure, where the 30-day readmission rate's very high. And one of the things that Jason Falvey will talk about a lot is how physical function measures are actually kind of strong predictors of their readmission rate. So it would be fantastic to get information from someone like Kyle, like, hey, Mrs. So-and-so's timed up in go score was this. Her 30-second sit to stand was this. She usually has some trouble with hemodynamics when she gets up. She gets lightheaded. She gets orthostatic. That kind of information would be valuable for me. So I have a baseline before I'm going into the door. So when I go see Mrs. So-and-so and her timed up and go is 65 seconds, mm. is that better than what she was in the hospital? Is it worse? And I think that kind of information would be extremely valuable in kind of reducing the risk of things like readmission and being able to communicate with our colleagues. I can call up the internist or the cardiologist and say, hey, Mrs. So-and-so is really having a lot of trouble with her physical function. She's her gait speed's way down. Her ability to transfer out of bed is way down. I think that kind of stuff would paint such a valuable picture, and it would ultimately benefit our patient and our healthcare system much more. Right, and, and, that's, it, and that's because you've got the information from acute care. So when you call the doctor, you can actually have a comparison of that. Is that correct? Is that what you mean by... You know, yeah, you absolutely. Call the cardiologist. So I can see, okay. Yeah, so trends. So right, seeing right. if they're 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 improving, they're declining, they're mm-hmm. they're kind of staying the same. That kind of stuff, I think. Yeah, trends be. and trends and rate of change, I think, are grossly underappreciated mm-hmm. in in our field writ large. And I think to your point, Kenny, pragmatically, the thing that we leave out is that you know I'm not going to walk into my hospital tomorrow and change care transitions writ large and say you know what, we call home health therapists, we now write very detailed discharge summaries, our discharge summaries are pulled into physician discharge summaries, these things are faxed right away to the home health therapist with our pager numbers and personal cell phone numbers with hours that they can call us in our email address, right? That's totally unreasonable. But I think we forget that the patient and family is the unifying factor between settings, right? I can tell Mrs. Smith and her daughter exactly what her tug time is. I can say how many steps she's taking per day. I can even have them measure this. And I've had patient family members self-measure five times sit to stand while the patient is still hospitalized. So I think there's some pragmatic things that as acute care therapists we could do much better that don't take a lot of time that could really set you guys up for success. Because i got to be honest, there's so many patients that discharge from the hospital and I'm like, oh my goodness, good on the home health physical therapist who's about to inherit this nightmare and I have no idea how to get a hold of them, but my goodness, they're discharging at 8 a.m. so I never have to deal with this again. Have a good one. And I'm I mean, sure you've I'm sure you've walked into it. <laughs> is is it possible as and I know as an inpatient therapist, I mean I used to work in inpatient and I know it's crazy and it's you're you're really moving around from patient to patient. But if if there's a you know, if you know a discharge date and sometimes you, you get into work and they're gone. Right? Yeah, as yeah. A, as an acute care. So is it possible to even if you just were to handwrite, like jot some things down, give it to the patient or the family and say, if you, if you go into, if you have a home health therapist come, you can give them this sheet of paper. Is that legal? I don't even know if it's legal or not. Of course, of course it's legal. You're just giving the patient their yeah. own information. Yeah. That's so totally up I to them that, what to do with it. That might be a way to help bridge that gap a little bit, but of course it's certainly putting more, 
added work onto the acute care therapist. But if it's like a quick, like just jot some things down, like Kenny said, like what, what's your, your five times sit to stand or what's your get up and go or, you know, so that you have like some basic baselines or like you said, like yeah, this, absolutely. this woman doesn't go to bed until two in the morning. So don't schedule things early. I mean, you know, these are like basic things that are important to a home health therapist. Cause if you show up at someone's door at 10 in the morning and they hate being seen early, that's going to be a really unproductive session. You know, that's happened to me. Or they're me. not wearing clothes, right? I mean, that's a thing. I mean, that that's happens. never happened, happened to me. Often. Very it often. does? That's never happened <laughs> Very to me. Often. But my home health population is a little different than Kenny's home health population. But I do see yeah. patients that are post op. I mean, I'm seeing, granted, some of my patients are like 30 something ACLs post op, but I'm still seeing, you know, first day post op patients. And, and it would be nice to have a little heads up coming from. I mean, not for an ACL, but for a total knee replacement. Now, I have sure. tracked down the therapist. I've done it. You know, good for good on you. I mean, that's because right you know there. I'm persistent. So I will like I'm like, what's their name? Like I I don't care if I have to track them down on social media. Like I am finding this therapist to chat with. <laughs> you know, and it's always ended up being number one, a great for the patient. Number two, it's just a a bigger network for me. Um, and it's because it's nice to, and, and it's, I think it's nice for the inpatient therapist because the acute care therapist, because they're like, okay, this is great. I can actually get some follow up. And I followed up like months later, I will send an email no. like so-and-so is doing this, 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 and this. And I think it's gratifying for everyone involved. Yeah. I think everyone wants to have that broader perspective. I mean, first of all, remind me never to refer a, a patient to you because you'll be, Oh my God. <laughs> I, will track, I will track you down. <sighs> oh my goodness. It sounds, sounds like a lot of work, but I mean, I collaborate with an outpatient therapist in our system on a patient case. And I mean, I agree with you a hundred percent. It was, it's just so satisfying to, to see the bigger picture and see how they were progressing and, 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 and feel like you had some useful insight to give that outpatient therapist. And I think a lot of it is, is just that, you know, classic kind of cognitive inertia, that hurdle where our psyche and our minds make something seem much more uh, hard or time consuming than it actually is. But if we're creative and we broaden our lens to understand that when the patient leaves the hospital, that's a very vulnerable time. And there's many things that we can do to set them up for success. Like we're going to write notes. Like, why not print that note off and give it to the patient? Say, hey, give this to your home health therapist. I mean, exactly. it takes, and the thing I always use in acute care, because sometimes it's hard for us to use outcome measures because we're always using them in a pseudo non-standardized way is the question I always pose to our department, our mentees is, how long does it take to do a six minute walk test? And you'd be surprised. I'm like, I mean, people will actually question? sit there. <laughs> no less than six minutes. It's an actual question. And people actually sit there. And I'm like, it takes six minutes, guys. Yeah. The patient's going to walk for six minutes. Yeah. Do you think we can fit that in? Yeah. Is that so and I think the same thing is true of, I mean, how long does it take to sit there with the patient and, and write a few notes in between sets of something? Write something on a piece of paper. Or just literally print out your assessment. Print out your note. Jot a few notes. Put your email on there. Yeah. Right? You know, especially for the high-risk patients. You don't have to do it for everyone. Jason and I talk about this a lot. Mm -hmm. This is not for every patient. But a higher-risk patient... Uh, a patient you're a little more concerned about, a patient's a little more complicated, has some nuance to their case. Mm -hmm. I Why think not? That's fair. I, I think that's fair. And Kenny, do you have anything to add to that? Because we're going to kind of cut it off after this, and then we'll pick up on part two. Sure. Well, I think it's just a culture thing. And I think Kyle can speak to that a lot, because I think it's very analogous to changing the culture in an ICU to facilitate 
early mobility. Um, and there's, was it Ramona Hopkins who wrote that paper at a LDS hospital talking about developing a culture of early mobility in the ICU and the challenges that were faced. And a lot of it was inertia. We've always done it this way. Uh, it's not safe to reduce their sedation. It's not safe to get them up and out of bed. And there was a lot of pushback. Um, so I think the thing is just changing the culture of acute rehab and home health rehab and fostering communication, making it, it easier, making it intuitive. Because like Kyle said, we're documenting it all. It's all in the EMR. We just need to, to work to figure a way out to have it more integrated and pull into the physician discharge summary where it says you're being discharged with an ejection fraction less than 35%, hypertension, coronary artery disease, your timed up and go score was 35 seconds, your blood pressure with activity was 151 over 75. I think that stuff would be fantastic and wouldn't take all that much legwork when it's intuitive and, and easily facilitated. Yeah, I agree. And and on that note, we are going to kind of cut off this part of our talk, our part one talk. Um, and so everyone listening to part one, thank you for tuning in. Part two will come out on Thursday. Um, so be, be sure to tune into that because in that we'll sort of talk about um, uh, how do we move the physio uh, field forward towards a more science-based focus. So we'll take sort of a smaller look at it and a bigger picture look. We'll talk about fads and PT and, and are we putting all of our eggs in, in a buzzword salad basket or are we actually looking at the research and seeing what works? So there's a difference between marketing and what works. So we'll talk about that um, in part two on Thursday. So be sure to tune in for that. And guys, thanks so much. And uh, we'll continue this on Thursday. Thank you so much for having us. Appreciate it. It's been okay. a lot of fun. Okay, and everybody, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll catch you in a couple days. Have a great couple days, and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.